Well, we have a question even before the session, and Samyukta says, please, please ask Radha how awesome her students were from Zoom machine, Samyukta. Okay, fine. Yeah, they were they were good. On <laughs> <It was laughs> two weeks. No, I was looking at some of the work, and yeah, that was very interesting. It reminded me of that other session you had done at Trishti, where somebody made edible books. Oh yeah, that was a really long time ago. Yeah, I have to say, like this time doing the research has completely blown my mind because it changed my perspective on what a book is like i don't even know how to put it into words it has been such an exciting experience researching about you well i'm glad i'm glad at least you uh, have a little like perception shift about books i think most of yeah. the elective said that in the end so and that was one of my goals to make people yeah that was really fun Okay, so I'm just going to introduce you as far as I know. Radha Pandey is a book artist and she earned her Master of Fine Arts in Book Arts from the University of Iowa, Center for the Book, where she studied letterpress printing, book binding, and papermaking with a focus on European, Eastern, and I'm not sure if I should say this, but Indo-Islamic papermaking techniques. And her artist books are in numerous private and public collections. I think one is it even a GL library, so it's going to be a really fun session, and I hope many more people join it. So I'm very excited to be speaking to you, and if there's something I have missed out, then yeah, please feel free to introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good introduction. Uh, so I usually describe myself as a book artist who works with letterpress printing and papermaking. Uh, because my primary sort of interest or my gateway drug into book arts was paper. Um, and so the way that I, that the way my work expresses itself is in book form. And that's primarily what I do besides teaching and researching on history of the craft yeah. of paper and things like that. Yeah. Well, teaching and researching is something that I would also put in there because a lot of your work, I mean, that's how I got to, I think, look at your work. A lot. I mean, I was introduced to what you were exactly were doing because of all of the workshops that you conducted. And I was just like reading through people, like what they felt and what they took away from it. And if anybody is interested, you would definitely have to check out her Instagram, her blog. There are so many workshops and all of them look really, really fun. So I think we can start. With sure. a question, what what exactly you mentioned that you were a book artist, and I think people don't like usually uh, confining themselves to a term. So I want to ask you, what does that term mean to you? And if you could give us a brief description of your current practice, so that's to set a uh, context for the, the rest of the conversation. Yeah, so it's a little bit hard to explain it because it's so many different things. Um, and so that's why I don't feel so limited by that term, because if you're a book okay. artist, it can mean that you make uh, your artwork in the form of a book. Uh, it also means that you have a range of skills. So you're constantly working with different types of skills with every project. So, for example, I uh, make paper for some of my projects, 
for the projects that I make paper, I will letterpress print on the paper that I make. So I have to have those two skills, uh, book binding as well. And then all of the research that comes with actually producing your own work on a specific subject, which can take a really long time. And then letterpress printing doesn't only mean like setting type in metal and printing it, but also um, carving your own blocks. So illustration and then knowing how to like make your illustrations printable in that particular format so letterpress printing so for me i do a lot of like i used to do a lot of linoleum uh, and reduction linoleum but now i'm kind of uh, starting to switch to wood engraving which i find slower more challenging but slower and uh, a lot more like eco-friendly <laughs> than using okay. linoleum yeah uh yeah so that's those are all the things that uh, being a book artist can encompass in any one day besides the teaching and the research and the lecturing and all of that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I like that you said in any one day because that makes, I mean, that makes everything much, much clearer. Yeah, so it can, so it obviously depends on what kind of project uh, I'm working on at any given time. So it's not like I make paper for all of my books. Uh, so it depends on the project and it depends on studio access and time, just like having enough time. Uh, how long do I actually want to spend on a particular project? So, yeah. Well, you mentioned you made your own paper and I think all of us would be very interested. And I actually wanted to try my hand at it and I will definitely do it this weekend. So could you talk about your education? How did you get into design? How did you learn about it? And under what circumstances did you decide to learn paper making, printing, binding, everything that falls into book arts? I think we can start with paper making. Uh, sure. I've always been interested in paper as a small child. <laughs> so um, I was introduced to Japanese paper, washi, by my mother when I was five. And okay. I thought I would try to make it by by crushing up newspaper and you know doing the chalni thing uh obviously it didn't work because that's not how japanese paper is made but uh, i was kind of obsessed with trying to get there at some point in my life and so i'd always been interested in paper as a material and so i kind of uh veered towards that in my further studies so i did visual communication design at srishti and as my internship i Interned at a paper mill in Oroville. Okay. Uh, and I was lucky enough to go to the States for three weeks during that time to study Japanese paper making, like in a workshop setting. And then I met like all of these like book artists and I figured out, like I learned what this is that people are actually doing this kind of stuff and making somewhat of a living and enjoying what they do. Like they don't have to do GD yeah. for the rest of their life in order to do something they like. So I decided that that's what I'm going to do, that I'll just pursue this and see where it takes me. So I applied to an MFA in the book arts. There's such a thing uh, at the University of Iowa, which is in Iowa in the US. Uh, so they have something called the Center for the Book, where you can learn all of these things over three years. And okay. that's, that's what I did. That's how I got my education. So two of the things that I found really fascinating were that you mentioned that they literally wrote down your names and just picked it out of the hat. How did and you? Yeah. 
And the second thing was like when you said that uh, you went and studied paper making, uh, Japanese paper making under Catherine Nash, and then you actually got to collaborate with her, and you were making projects with her. So it, it, I just felt like it, it has been like a continuous obsession from one point, and it just like cleared the the whole path was like yes, I'm going there. So did that? Did it always feel that way, or? Well, did yeah. you, every, at any point of time, did you actually doubt, am I actually going to do this? Or was there any no. sort of... There's no doubt. Okay. No, I yeah. always felt like the things that were supposed to happen just happened at the right time. And I just happened to okay. meet the right person to do the next step. And I just kind of followed my gut. Um, yeah, so like when I went to Haystack, uh, I met a person who did these beautiful handbound books. And so my next internship mm-hmm. was with her in Vermont for two months, like a year later. And then, you know, building that relationship, doing books. And then through that, I happened to meet another person, like go back to his and meet another person who said, oh, but there's a conference on paper making. And if you go there, you'll meet like all the people related to paper in one place instead of like, having to like find them and suss them out. And at that okay. conference, I met the person who was teaching at the MFA program. And he said, oh, why don't you like, did you know there was an MFA program? Why don't you apply? And I was like, I had no idea. Okay, I will apply. <laughs> no, I mean, your journey was quite inspiring then. Like having that sort of certainty. I would like to ask about something on your current Instagram handle. Halden Bookworks, and you have been posting regular updates, and I have to say that I really like where it's going, and yeah, could you talk about that, and in the end, if you could talk about what your future plans for Halden Bookworks is, are you going to be looking at people internationally, so yeah. Yeah, so that is like a passion project that I'm doing with my partner in crime and in life, uh, Johan, (laughs) Johan Solberg, who's a bookbinder. So he already had a bindery in that. It's like an old cotton factory that's shared by many artists. And so we decided to invest in like one of the floors and build it up into a bigger studio. So the studio that we have finished now is like the office space and the letterpress print studio. So the next phase is like the paper studio and a a bind, another bindery and a living space. So we hope to host artists in residence. In the future, we hope to have mm-hmm. workshops, like teach workshops. Okay. Um, and we also hope to host people, like come and teach there, besides using it as our own studio. So it's very much a public space and it's open to anyone, wow. anywhere in the world. And I was, after after this elective, I was just discussing with Johan that we should try to find a grant for um, students from India who want to come and intern at uh, the studio for short periods. So that's hopefully going to be in the works too. Okay, that sounds very exciting. All right. So I want to sort of jump. I mean, I have been making a few jumps here and there, but I want to jump into your current work on Mughal Botanicals. And so all of your works, I found that they have a way of weaving in extremely complex narratives into very strong and sort of packed statements. And when, I'm, when, you, when someone engages with your work, the complexity becomes extremely evident and it's very contextual based. Everything is context. So could you talk about this and 
why you've chosen to represent the particular species that you have. What is the work? And I think you have four species. Is that it? Uh, I have nine, actually. All uh, right. So, yeah. The, no, that's okay. So, yeah, I've only photographed like two spreads because the other ones are still in uh, a work in progress. But the idea behind this project was to talk about um, the impact of British rule in India and the impact that it had on our relationship with nature. So the thesis like for the project is that when India was ruled by the Mughals, there was a lot of patronage towards the arts. So therefore we still know miniature painting, right? We still know what yeah. a, a Mughal manuscript page should look like visually. Like if you see it, it's not a surprise. Um, and if we see paintings in those manuscripts of animals or plants, it's also not a surprise because there was a lot of representation of nature in that way. So there's a lot of patronage, a lot of money given to artists at that time to produce these like representations of the natural world. So what changed then with the coming in of the British was that India was seen as property, as we all know. Uh, but part of that uh, perspective also lent itself to nature. So nature was seen as property and something to economize. And so a lot of a lot of the plants were that were native to India were taken to different countries uh, via England and propagated all over the world. That's why if you go to, you know, if you go to South America or if you even the United States or parts of Europe, you'll see these like trees that should look like they belong in India, right? Like Champa and all of these things. Um, okay. So that's all because of uh, the economic interests of the British. And so the ways that these were represented then in book form was those beautiful European botanicals that we all know and love. Like we see like pictures of those on Google like all the time, right? But that even though they're beautiful, it, the purpose behind that was to understand the botany and biology of the plant so that you could propagate it. So the use, as opposed to the Mughals, which were looking at it more as an aesthetic. So that not only changed like our book history, like literally our book history changed because of that representation uh, and that like economic interest, but also changed how we as Indians were interacting with our environment. And so okay, that's, yeah. that's what the book kind of addresses, that we suddenly had this weird cultural shift where it was, was no longer part of our lives. It was something that we could use to make our lives better. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. So the plants that I've chosen are plants that were never popularized by the British because the, their only value besides like, uh, you know, native uses for medicine was that they were beautiful. So they were never really popularized in that way. They didn't have like an economic value. So that's, those are the yeah, plants I'm highlighting. I mean, that makes quite a statement, you know, very, very political and pointed way. So, well, <laughs> yeah, actually I was, I, I, about time. Yeah. <laughs> I had a question about, um, yeah, your representation of these things also. When I was looking at, uh, let's say, and you had a work called Anatomia Botanica, and that talks about the sacred lotus, uh, southern magnolia, and hibiscus. Yeah. Right, hibiscus. Okay. Yeah. So 
when you were uh, making the linear cuts for those things, I saw that you were referencing certain specimens that you had found. So as, as an artist, do you try staying as faithful as uh, you can to this particular specimen? Or do you just freely try to capture the essence of it by a broad understanding of the species, how they look like, and so that you can carry across that identification? Because I wanted to understand your idea of uh, aesthetic value or yeah, how, how you would represent this. Yeah, I was trying to... I was trying to be as accurate as possible. Um, so okay. I did, I took a botany class that semester. I spoke to botanists. I tried to get it like as close to reality as possible. Um, but linoleum isn't, you can't get extremely thin lines with linoleum. And so there were a lot of like things that I had to forego because of the medium that I was using. And so in this book, the one that I just talked about, I'm, I'm trying a different approach where I'm working from photographs that I've taken of these plants and drawings that I've done of these plants and then just representing them aesthetically instead of scientifically because that's exactly what I'm trying to talk about. So okay. yeah, it's a little bit of a different approach. Um, yeah, so I'm just trying it out. I've, I have tried to like be very specific about that. I did a book on lichen. And I try to be very specific about the representation yeah. of the lichen because there's so many different species out there. So with that one, I was really particular because there are people, like it was directed towards people who have an interest in that so they would know if I had got something wrong. So yeah, there's a little bit of a responsibility there. Okay. So my next question is something I think all of us really care about and value because you mentioned that when you were finally able to track down the Kabzi family, you initially had some difficulty because of your gender. And in a place like India, it would not be a rare occurrence for us to negotiate our own interests while respecting beliefs that might butt heads with the ones that we've adopted. So were you, and if you were, how were you able to resolve that? And do you have any advice for us if we should find ourselves in similar situations? Um... Yeah, I mean, it was really annoying. <laughs> it was very annoying okay. and frustrating in the beginning. Uh, this is also 2012. So, I mean, like, things are very different now uh, in terms of how I would do it and in terms of, like, people's perception of the younger generation today. So, when I, when I approached them, I approached sort of not the older Kagzi, um, Kagzi of the family, the grandfather, I guess, but his son and he was really really ambivalent and so the way that I approached it was try to be as open as possible about my intentions and try to be as honest about my education and my interests and so I think I think they didn't believe that I would deliver on whatever I was saying by virtue okay. of the fact that I was a woman right and because I was a stranger and so when they saw that I had actually published an essay on them in this like journal, this hand paper making journal and gave them a copy of it, they warmed up to me. So we have a much better relationship now. But one of the things I had to do was to get my father to speak to the man and yeah. introduce me, you know, introduce the relationship, the kind of person I am, like vouch for me basically. And so even though it sucked 
sometimes you just have to do stuff like Whatever that. Yeah. 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 And it paid off. Like I st- I'm still in touch with them. Now the grandson is in charge and we're, I think he's a little bit younger than me. So, you know, it works. Okay. Yeah. So the next one is a bit of a personal question and it's a generic question, but I thought it best to ask you because I felt like you you could answer it in a way, maybe. Um, the play of time and memory is a very strong theme in a lot of your works. I think you mentioned that engaging with certain works like deep time requires patience and a lot of contemplation. And I understand that you dwell on ideas and concepts for extended periods of time and it starts to materialize only much later. So I wanted to ask about how you manage your time and if you could talk about actually developing enough patience to appreciate all of the geologic changes that happen over eons of basically, yeah. Like, how do I appreciate this world? Because I understand it happens at such a long time frame, and I'm a very ephemeral thing in this. So I, I think it's a lot to do with developing patience, which I think you have. So I wanted <laughs> to ask you that. How to develop patience and how I manage my time. Okay. Um, how to develop patience? Deep breathing, meditation, which I do. Um, but also, I think you have to have like a lot of patience with yourself as a human being, because we are so ephemeral and we do make so many mistakes, right? Um, and I think that's, I think that's really key because, as you mentioned, I take a long time to for the ideas to come to fruition. And the way that I manage my time, so I'm not like, we have this, we all have this impulse of like, I'm wasting my time if I'm not working. Like I'm wasting my time right now because I'm sitting here in front of the phone and talking to somebody instead of like being productive, like productivity. Uh, But we have to realize that relaxation is also part of that work because if you don't do that, you're not as productive. And so a lot of my time is spent reading and contemplating and thinking about these ideas. So I'm they're churning in my head all the time and it might come out as a thing that I choose to write down or it might come out as a small mock-up that I do or an idea that I talk to somebody else about. And then it slowly develops over time. So it's also about patience with yourself and making sure that you give yourself the time to actually develop the idea the way you want. So part of the reason why it takes me so long is because it has to, the physical form has to kind of match what I see in my mind's eye. And most of the time, I don't know what it is until I've made a mock-up or seen the right kind of paper or touched a certain material, right? And so developing patience, I feel like, Part of that is like spending time in nature, at least for my kind of work. And a lot of that is silence, like time spent in silence, in contemplation. But a lot of that is also having other stimuli that is not directly your work. So like I read a lot of science, yeah, I read a lot of science fiction. um, And I watch a lot of stuff on crime. And it's not directly related to my work. But it does give me ideas on how other people are approaching their ideas and their plot Hmm. points and how they're making it more universally accessible, right? 
like the question you yeah. asked me isn't universally accessible it's very individual so how do you translate that into something that's universally uh recognized and so that kind of thing i think only develops when you've spent a lot of time making a lot of mistakes and seen things fail because then you know what doesn't work which brings you much closer to what does work yeah definitely so my next question is about the scope for paper making applying these paper making principles especially for people who work with i'm not sure if this is i mean i'm not comfortable asking this because it might irk you eco friendly textiles and sustainability because i did hear that i mean you said that the government's hierarchy for is like textiles and then it's paper making so i was just wondering if something can happen in tandem there and yeah so because a lot of people have questions about natural dyes and um edible clothing and a lot of crazy things are happening so i wanted to know what what is your take on it do you have any thoughts um i think there is scope there like that doesn't hurt my feelings that was the original like paper making effort in india uh like technology and technique and tradition aside originally when we were making paper after independence it was the scraps from all the khadi being produced in gandhi ashrams that was being used for paper making and that's why today we find paper making units in gandhi ashrams like that that's the link okay um, but now what they're using in those ashrams is basically textile waste from t-shirt factories so it's okay. not at all i mean like it is using waste but at the same time it's not at all like addressing this whole th- this slow cloth movement right that everybody's uh, everybody's after these days so it's not uh, yeah. i don't think it's something that it's not all it's not producing paper that's um a very good quality either so hmm. i think the focus should be more on materials that are more sustainable long term and like uh plant materials as well that are more sustainable long term so traditionally we use a lot of hemp um and cotton but also hemp in india and that's what the kagzis in um sanganer are still using Okay. and that can still be used today because people do grow that uh for fiber and all the refuse from that can be used for paper making wow okay and i also wanted to say that you guys should definitely check out radha's blog her website because when you're looking through it it there's a lot of information on how to do these things on your own from scratch i think even um you made you harvested kozu and made paper like from tree to actual sheets on your own and that was yeah that was really amazing and i found that um the paper making community in general at least the one that you found is extremely tight like you linked to another blog you linked to another blog and there was so much resource that i felt like i was in a position to just start i could actually start and um materialize something so i think anybody interested in this trail anybody with some time should really yeah go down this rabbit hole <laughs> so i mean would you like to say anything among that or is this like yeah i mean it is a rabbit hole so once you start you kind of do get sucked in so beware 
Um, but if you do decide to do this, um, the paper making community is a really open community. So that was a right. That was a good guess. They, everybody loves like people that are interested in the same thing because it's so small and so closely knit. Um, yeah. So if you do, uh, hooray for us. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about, um, uh, I mean, uh, silence and nature. And I think you mentioned sometime that uh, your father was a documentary filmmaker. Yeah. And you you spent a lot of time in nature where you're just like sitting at the sitting behind the camera and waiting for something to happen. And then later you mentioned that many times in your work, even you don't know exactly what is going to happen. And a gratification, a sense of gratification comes from the fact that um, you're not sure if this is actually going to work or so all of these things tied in. And I wanted to know what is it that keeps you in this field so strongly, if you could talk about it and spending time with it. Is it that the unpredictability or uncertainty of it or yeah, I wanted to just ask about that. Um, yeah, so that is definitely part of it like the unpredictability so what motivates yeah. what motivates me um what motivates me to make work most of the time is the fact that i don't know what's on the other side mm-hmm. if that comes closer to the to answering your question so a lot of that patience that i was talking about was cultivated during those like trips to the forest um waiting for something to happen um and then yeah the unpredictable nature of that, right? Like something happens and if you're not ready for it, you miss it because it's, it's not going to wait for you. And so a lot of that has affected the way uh, that has, that has affected the way that I make some of my work. So I did make um, a stop motion animation uh, based on just that very idea, which is uh, like birds flying off a bunch of treetops because I missed taking a picture of them. Uh, when they were sitting on the tree. Um, Yeah, so basically, I missed this opportunity. So the picture that I got was just a bunch of treetops, instead of uh, all the birds sitting on top of the tree. And so that's what inspired that animation, which is like, um, the sequence of birds sitting on the tree and then flying off these treetops. Uh, but in 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 paper, in handmade paper. So that was another sort of like unpredictable moment that led to another really unpredictable project that took about a year and a half because I had no idea if you could actually do stop motion using watermarks in paper. So that was okay. just, that was like a, yeah, like a really wacko experiment that thankfully it worked because uh, I spent a really long time trying to figure it out. I mean, I, when I was looking at your works, I felt like you do stumble many times, but then if the vision is strong enough, you just see it through no matter what. Because there was one of those works in which the soldering iron did not fit in it. You know, it's like, oh, this doesn't work, next thing. This doesn't work, next thing. And yeah, I, I really love that attitude. It was very inspiring. So I wanted to ask, we're almost out of time and I had so many questions, but I want to kind of address this one since we're not actually getting a question from the audience right now. Um, I know that you sit with a lot of ideas and dwell on them. So I wanted to know some of your thoughts on what are you interested in so that we can, we might get a sort of anticipatory moment where about your future works. So 
I wanted to know what was on your mind. What were you thinking about and what were you wrestling with? Like, you mean the next project? I mean, it does not have to be a project because these are just thoughts. And then maybe one of these will become a project. Maybe they won't. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been like at least trying to think about is the cyclical nature of uh, myth making, storytelling. Okay. Um, and how it's used in the Indian context, even today. And so how can that like, cyclical narrative be used in a book structure? And what is it that I want to say about that? I mean, that's really, that's great. That's very interesting. Cool. Anybody can find that out. But how do you represent that? And what is it? What aspect of that? Um, do I want to share is something that I'm still like struggling with. Okay. It does. Yeah. So it's something that I've been thinking about a lot uh, and appreciating a lot. So it's something now I know I will have to sit with for a while to figure out, you know, what is it? What do I actually want to say? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's very, that's a very exciting thought. I hope you do find something. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I guess it's the end of the session and it was lovely talking to you. Yeah, so, you as well. Yeah. It was a bit creepy the way you knew all these like things about my life. <laughs> I was just very, very fascinated. Like, because this is something that I never thought was even possible. And I was just looking through and I was, yeah, I was really hooked on the whole aspect of paper making. And I had a lot of questions actually, but. I hope we can have another session with you and I could ask them and I will try not asking so many pointed <laughs> questions. No, no, no problem. It was fun. Thanks. Okay. See ya.